Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. If you were to come to my neighborhood this summer, which is Crown Heights, and walked around, you would see and hear some really amazing sights and sounds. You might hear, what, steel drums? You might see groups of people practicing dances, beautiful costumes growing larger and more elaborate. These are just some of the activities that lead up to the culmination on Labor Day of the West Indian American Day Carnival, which is a celebration of West Indian culture and heritage that happens every year on Labor Day in Brooklyn. But this carnival has deep global roots, and we're going to dig into its history around the world and right here in Brooklyn on this episode. The West Indian <laughs> parade, every flag comes right. out, right, from every island. It's this unique, both a celebration of your own particular national ethnic identity, but also of a kind of pan-Caribbean, mm-hmm. even pan-African, global black identity. Yeah. And part of that identity is also the identity of the neighborhood. Ads are, if anything, a reflection of established economic power or perceived um, potential economic power, right. right? So what this ad, this big ad placed in here tells us is that this is a, a market that is seen as potentially very, very profitable. And I think what's important to say here is that it is. Yes. I mean, I yes. think, you know, we talked about a little bit about this in the first segment, but the West Indian Day Carnival is an enormous wealth generator for Crown Heights, for the artisans and the business owners um, in this area. America is not made up of one culture. It's made up of a vast variety. So therefore, the West Indian parade should not be limited to West Indians per se. It should be a joining of all cultural groups. The West Indian Day Carnival started here in Brooklyn in the late 1960s, but it has much deeper roots and a much deeper history. Zaheer, tell us a little bit about where and when this tradition got started. It's more than just a parade, and it's always been more than just a parade or just that one day. Carnival, at least this carnival, has its origins in Trinidad, which, plug, is my I know other, homeland. <laughs> yeah. other, other things have origins yes. in Trinidad, other um, people. <laughs> so I got I to gotta do this right, you know, I gotta, or else my family will be like, what's wrong with you? Um, so If they don't like it, they can tweet us. <laughs> yeah. I, at hashtag I, Yeah, please don't. Don't tweet. <laughs> no, but absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is, the Carnival is a great source of pride for people from Trinidad and Tobago, which is the twin Caribbean islands in the southern Caribbean. 
with with good reason, right? Because it's one of the the biggest attractions uh, in the Caribbean. It's certainly one of the biggest attractions for tourism to Trinidad, but it has its roots in like so many things in the Western Hemisphere in the slave trade and the experience of enslaved people. Carnival was brought to Trinidad by the French slave owners and some freed people in the late 18th century as a masquerade, French Catholics, as a masquerade farewell to the flesh before the Lenten season. This would have close parallels to Mardi Gras, to the Carnival in Rio, and other parts of the world. So this is not uh, different in that respect. There are carnivals all over the world that have this kind of tradition. What was interesting, though, or unique in Trinidad was that enslaved people were excluded from the celebrations and developed their own celebration called Canboule. Canboule derives from like the French can brule, which means burnt cane, um, which celebrates the end of the harvest. Mm And in these Kanbule celebrations, they incorporated West African Kaiso music. Celebrations would include a, a singer, a griot-type figure called a chantuel, who is the pre-Calypsonian figure. Hmm. And so the Kanbule uh, was a kind of response to the uh, ruling elite's masquerades. And how did the ruling elite feel about Kanbule? Oh, they didn't like it. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. And so what happens in, in 1834 with emancipation, the end of slavery in Trinidad, Kanbule kind of evolves into carnival. At this point in, in Trinidad's history, the carnival that is coming out of the experience of enslaved people is satirical. Uh, a lot of the costumes and music make mockery and critique of the colonial elites and the ruling class and the kind of respectability politics of the ruling class. And you see this in the performance of gender and sexuality, no distinction between the sacred and the profane in the way that we kind of understand in Western religion. And so it's seen as it's seen as profane, it's seen as unruly, it's seen as rebellious, it's seen as chaotic. But for the participants, it's seen as freedom, it's seen as self-determination, it's seen as a celebration of cultural identity. From its very roots, I think Carnival had a very distinct political sensibility, a cultural sensibility, a historic sensibility, and and even a religious sensibility. Mm, and like an activist and a protest sensibility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. And so I think before we even come to yeah. to Brooklyn, it's inseparable from these roots. It's fascinating to think about um, these practices moving from, from place to place, taking on new meaning and being transformed by various different groups, because of course that happens when it comes to, to New York, right? right? So That's right. the way that carnival is practiced here um, is di- quite different um, than the way it was practiced in Trinidad, but of course with this constant communication and tension and back and forth between that I think is just a, a beautiful symbol yeah, of immigration. Yeah. And I think just the role of globalism, of global capital, of corporate interests transforms carnival all over the world. Right. And, and that's certainly reflected in Brooklyn. 
so let's get to Brooklyn because, of course, it's Trinidadians, it's people mm-hmm. who are moving here mm-hmm. to New York who are bringing over these traditions with them. And, and before we even get to Brooklyn, we have a few stops to make, right? right? So we start to see West Indian migration to New York City in the early 20th century, right? Some settlements in Brooklyn that early, but also in Harlem, of Yeah, course. I mean, Harlem is, yeah. is at this point the black mecca. And right. so... It is. It has one of the highest concentrations of black people in the Western Hemisphere at this point. And so people knew Harlem. Like right. Harlem is of the course. place you want to come to. And then um, Carnival takes on a bunch of different manifestations in Harlem, actually. It's mm-hmm. not a parade. Today we like just assume parade. But there were performances that took place at auditoriums and performance halls. There were different manifestations That's of its right. celebration yeah. here, right? But eventually it does, by the 1940s, seem to have made itself into a parade, which seems to me like a particular kind of Americanization of a tradition. Yeah, I think the process of getting a permit right. and defining Finding the route, and I think it was it was Lenox Avenue. I think it was Seventh and Lenox. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so it starts as a very much calmer celebration than what Carnival or even Mardi Gras was known for. I mean, it's it's just that there's some like there is this like sort of iconic experience of the like ethnic parade, mm-hmm. right? That is mm-hmm. already existing throughout the country, but particularly mm-hmm. in New York in the early 20th century. And so it does seem that there is like a dual side of this coin. It's like at once it is about the preservation of practices that you are bringing with you to a very different place. And on the other hand, it is about the suffusion of American traditions into that practice. Right. right? It's, it's a sign of your arrival right. that you have a parade like right. everybody else. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also really public. And I mean, I think yeah. there's something that's interesting about thinking about what it would mean to like rent out an auditorium to celebrate something versus like the like the outward and performative and almost educational mm-hmm. um, sort of mm-hmm. experience of of bringing this practice back outside, mm-hmm. right? So when does it get to Brooklyn? Um, how does that happen? Let's talk a little bit about the context of that. So in the 1960s, um, the carnival moved from Harlem to Brooklyn, and but there are a few things that happen. Yeah, right? so a lot of things happen in the 1960s. In the 1960s. We should maybe talk about mm. a few. <laughs> um, this is the decade we seem to can't get away yes. from because there's so many lessons to be learned from especially this. Especially for today. Especially for today. Uh, of course, in the 1960s, the civil rights movement, which includes activism in New York, is happening. Um, There is a nervousness about large gatherings of black people on the part of the authorities and the police. And Harlem Um, is seen as the Mecca. And Harlem is seen as the Mecca. And you had in 1964 was what they call the long, hot summer. Uh, I think, is it that year that they lose their permit? That's right. Um, That's right. For the parade in Harlem. But something else important is happening in the 1960s um, that completely reshaped the demographics of New York and many other places. And that's um, a transformation of laws around immigration. And so the 1965 Immigration Act basically takes us from a system that had enormous quotas on who could come in to this country and loosen it, again, in the context of the civil rights movement and the idea that the government cannot discriminate on people That's based right. on ethnicity. And so this really transforms the demographics of this city in a major way. But I think what's interesting is when we think about immigration post 1965. In New York, I think we often talk about two very important sort of um, 
movements of people, people from Asia, especially Chinese, but all kinds of Asian countries, and then people from South and Latin America, right, and Mexico. And this kind of allows us to forget the importance and the massive movement of people from the Caribbean to New York and really transforming neighborhoods like the neighborhoods of central Brooklyn. Yeah, and I think this is... um you kind of have like the the Black Atlantic, right? Like you have people from the Caribbean, you have people from the continent. Um, Even uh, people from the Caribbean are such a diverse group yeah, of people. Yeah. People speaking, you know, people speaking French, people That's coming right. from Anglophone That's right. um, countries, um, bringing very, you know, related but different traditions, That's right. That's different right. food That's ways, right. different That's practices. Right. So you have like these ethnic identities built around language, but also nationality. Like there's a very strong sense of national identity. I mean, I know from people in the Caribbean, like, and a strong sense of pride about like who is Trinidadian or Jamaican or Bayesian or Grenadian or what have you. Like there is this, and it's people like it. Don't confuse one for the That's other. That's right. right. No, like, it's very totally. Clear. I mean, we've even I think <laughs> talked a little about this on the pot on different episodes before. But like you know, in the same way that Italians were like, I'm not Calabrian. Right. I'm from right. Napoli. You yes, know. I mean, yes, it was like yes. there are there were there are hyper identities. Yes. Um. Into this, and there's a way that like there can people will think about like a monolithic black experience. That's right. In Brooklyn, that completely misses the mark on the right. diversity of what it right. means to. To be to to be a New Yorker and yeah. to be black, right? And so these kind of distinct identities are reflected in the way that these migrants and the generations that came after transformed the neighborhoods. And also, you know, back thinking back to the civil rights movement, you once things get to Brooklyn, you also see them organize really, really yes, quickly. Yes. So there is now a foundation of community organizations that are ready to come together and like kind of like codify this um, the, the, this experience and make it into something that is incredibly official and something in which yeah. they can get permits and they can negotiate with the mayor and negotiate with the police and negotiate with the Department of Sanitation in order to create an experience that like at its height is bringing millions of people to these neighborhoods. So let's just let's go there. Let's go to Crown Heights. Um, and the preparations for the West Indian Day Parade don't start like the day before Labor Day or the week before Labor Day. They start months, months before. Right. I mean, this has become an industry unto itself. And one that stretches throughout the calendar yeah, year yeah. and actually generates an enormous amount of energy, of production and of, of money um, for this area. Yeah, and I think one of the things about it is that it's so participatory. I mean, one of the things about Carnival is that the line between spectator and performer is kind of blurred. What's just as important with the Carnival is what's going on <laughs> on the side streets and right. on the sidelines right. as it is of the people who are in the official parade right. route. And so as a result of that, you might not be in an official parade, but you're going to be working on a costume. Yep, absolutely. Right? And so or like making it, your food exactly. or practicing your dance. Exactly, or, exactly. But I mean, when you do, I mean, when you do go to the parade, it's really remarkable what is, is created i mean so there is that sort of like um like that non-professional like participatory mm -hmm, grassroots experience mm -hmm. but there is also like a remarkable amount of expertise yes. that goes yes. into creating this i mean the costumes are 
like stru- even structurally like the right, most amazing right. things that you've ever yeah. seen it's the, it's gorgeous right yeah it represents an amount a huge amount of labor and economy both in terms of the work that people have put in to design and build these presentations these elaborate costumes and floats as well as a kind of transnational networks mm-hmm. right where there are people who go to carnival in trinidad yeah. Before Lent in the spring, whenever that happens to fall, sometimes in February, sometimes in March. And then they go to Caribana, which is in Toronto, mm-hmm. in around August. And then they come to Labor Day. And then I think there are other festivals in like Miami and Notting Hill in, in England. Mm-hmm. And there are people who travel doing almost kind of research or studying like, where's my next costume going to be? Yeah. Or following the bands and, you Picking know, up the, new the techniques, music. Yeah, new yeah. music. So yeah. I think that there's a whole travel industry that is built on this. It is really something that people have been preparing for all year. And probably as soon as the sun sets and the final float arrives and people are already strategizing, what are we going to do next year? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and so there's the spectacle, there's the labor that goes into it. There's also the talent, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you'll see, but you'll also hear really remarkable and diverse music. Um, you'll see dance incredibly professional yeah. dancing yeah. you know yeah. i mean there in so people are not just preparing sort of an economy throughout the year there's also engaging in, in practice throughout yeah the year. and i think what's was really interesting about the west indian american day carnival is all of the flags that you see right mm. which, which sets it apart from some of the other ethnic parades in new york so we've had like the puerto rican parade it's just like the puerto rican mm-hmm. flag you've had the dominican parade is mm-hmm. the dominican flag you've had columbus day parade like you know the italian kind of uh, references to italy in the west indian <laughs> a parade every flag comes right. out right from every island it's this unique both a celebration of your own particular national ethnic identity but also of a kind of Pan mm-hmm. Caribbean, even Pan African, global Black identity, yeah. and part of that identity is also the identity of the neighborhood. Crown Heights, historically, yeah. has been this home for this very thriving um, West Indian uh, community. I think at one point there was like a rival group that wanted to move it to Manhattan. For people who aren't familiar with New York, the typical Ethnic pride parades are down like Fifth Avenue mm-hmm. or Sixth Avenue, mm-hmm. right? It's a Manhattan thing. But it's really important that this happens in Crown Heights on Eastern Parkway as this kind of central boulevard of of Crown Heights because of, of what historically Crown Heights has been. Well, and perhaps even more so now as Crown Heights is changing just so rapidly as, of course, we've talked about in our past episode about Crown Heights. Gentrification has really changed the demographics of the neighborhood. And with that, I think there's become increasing emphasis on the importance of keeping the parade there, but then also increased tension between the people who are living in the neighborhood about what between one and three million people coming into an area for a weekend um, yeah, what that means. I mean, if you are not participating in it, it can be super inconvenient. I mean, I live in Crown Heights and I don't even live anywhere right. near Eastern <laughs> Parkway. Yeah. Like I live like maybe 10 blocks north of Eastern Parkway, but my street is blocked yeah. off. Part of what we see in communities around 
the country certainly and 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 really where gentrification is happening is one of this the kind of spheres where the tensions flare up is over the use of public space yeah i mean it's so funny because you know when we're going to get into the archives in the next segment but looking back through clippings about the parade it is i mean it's not surprising but it is really interesting the way that all kinds of cultural anxieties get projected onto this like mass gathering yes. of people of yes. color right yes. and so if you're looking in the 80s and the 90s it's it's um sort of like connected with these events of crime and all, there's all these questions about you know should we shut this down is this dangerous are the right people running it are the police handling it right are the mm-hmm. city handling it mm-hmm. right but of course we see these con- these ten- evolving and continuing up until today and even today in 2017 this question of the relationship between between violence and especially the the juve the early morning experience of the of the parade um continues to just to rock new york yeah and it's uh it is not clear-cut in terms of where people fall on this question i know like i personally lost a college classmate, Carrie Gabay, during one of the Juve celebrations. And among our close friends, people are like, it needs to be shut down because this is ridiculous. Like, we can't be having this. On the other hand, this does have a really important historic function and its roots. We know that there have been other acts of violence that happen throughout the city that don't get tagged. Right. And that there is this history in the United States to pathologize anything that involves black people. And so we have to be really vigilant in how those conversations happen. And I think that there's also, particularly if we think about Crown Heights in 2017, its demographics are changing. There continues to be a vibrant West Indian community there, but there are also like newly arrived white people. Yeah. There continues yeah. to be, um, you know, Hasidic Jewish people there. And there's something about the parade that is like, this is our time. There's a laying claim, I think, of the neighborhood that um, I think makes white people really uncomfortable. Yeah, and it's extremely... Uh, empowering on the That's other right. Side, right? Like That's right. For, exactly. And, and I think especially for a community that is seeing gentrification kind of eating away at the businesses, at the affordable housing for the people in your community. Well, you know, for we're going to have this one. You're not going to yeah. take this one thing. Well, and to tie it back to the history that you laid out for us in the beginning, I think one of the really interesting things that you see at the parade is that a huge part of it is creating masquerades, right? Is creating these costumes. And these costumes, as you say, were meant to sort of play and satirize like the the elite, the ruling mm-hmm. elite. Mm-hmm. And even if you go today, you can see these costumes like engaging with some of the major issues facing the community today. Not just about things in the past, um, not just about archetypes or tropes, but literally the bread and butter of the issues that people are dealing with on the ground in Crown Heights in 2017. Love this podcast? Then head over to iTunes and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us.
In this segment, we're going to look at one document from the Eastern Parkway Coalition records. For those researchers out there, the session number of this collection is 2007.016. We'll link to the finding aid on the show notes. So this is a really interesting collection. It is quite large. Um, it's like 11 manuscript boxes. And basically, the Eastern Parkway Coalition was a community organization based in Crown Heights. The papers are really focused on the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. It was founded in the 70s. One of the things that I love about this collection, which is like kind of not related to what we're talking about today, is it really focuses on community garden movement in the 1970s and 80s. So it's fascinating for anyone who's interested in that. But today, we're looking at one folder from box four um, that includes a number of materials related to the West Indian Day Carnival between 1979 and 1983. I too love this collection a lot. We're just wrapping up our Voices of Crown Heights project and there's so much in this collection that we benefited from. The particular document we're looking at, which is the 1981 Carnival Festival Souvenir Booklet. It is a glossy. It's um, heavy. It's heavy. It's a, like a magazine. Yeah. It's like a. It's like the kind of thing you would get like if you went to a concert. Exactly. Right? It has a color cover of someone in costume. And when you open it up, it has the seal of the West Indian American Day Carnival Association and defines the festival as a cultural experience of the Caribbean people in a Caribbean language through the efforts and participation of various artists in dance, calypso, steel band, costume design, plus exotic Caribbean dishes. So this organization, the West Indian American Day Carnival Association, this is the big organization that was established in the like late 60s or early 70s, under which this entire months and months of events actually take place. And you can see, really see how official it is as we flip through this yeah. booklet. We've got like the proclamation from Koch. We've got the proclamation from the governor. And then we have a welcome from Carlos Lazama. And, and this really reflects a kind of maturation mm. of this parade into this really official... It's I like guess a force. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. almost like a professionalization it of it. It is a professionalization. Yeah. I mean, it is, which is interesting because of what Carnival represents. This is, of course, paralleling how Carnival, which in its very origins was this community-based expression of resistance to ruling elite, yeah. gets accommodated, appropriated yeah. as a kind of form of state tourism in Trinidad or other places Absolutely. where it happens. Absolutely. And, and certainly this is the case here. This is a, a transformation of this tradition into something that is marketable. I mean, one of the symbols of that, and this is, of course, the presence of ads. And I mean, these are not like, you know, your dentist on the corner, although right. there are actually That's a few true. local yeah, ads. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like there are national beer ads in here. Yes. I mean, and I yes. think one of the most interesting set of ads that we can see a couple of them when we flip through is that there are actually a lot of travel ads. Yes. Um, yes. So um, a lot of BWIA ads. And so, you know, in this day, which our airlines have changed, this was British West Indies Airlines. Yes. This was a, uh, if I remember correctly, a Trinidad-based airline. People call it Biwi. This speaks to how the carnival was part of this transatlantic network. People going back and yes, forth, yes, learning from each other, yes, going to experience yes, different carnivals in different places, yes, learning some, learning yes. new music, new tricks, you know. I and but also like just visiting family. Well, yeah, and I think so. One of the things about Caribbean immigrants is that 
in part, I guess, for, because proximity and relatively affordable airfares yeah. that people came and they settled in the United States, but they frequently traveled back often. There's this, this constant refreshing of the culture of people who live in the United States who are, who are migrants and certainly true for New York. But I mean, this ad is really like an ad of tourism. So we're looking at an ad, uh, a BWIA ad, Trinidad and Tobago. And they say, you know, from $111 a night. So that sounds good. Mm-hmm. Too bad it's not 1981 and we can travel for that. Too. Yes, yes. Um, but of course, um, he, I like this. I love this ad copy. One of us is Trinidad, vibrant, cosmopolitan, the island where the steel band Calypso and Limbo were all born. One of us is Tobago, sensuous, secluded, <laughs> the legendary Isle of Robinson Crusoe. Did you know that? I did didn't know that but it is true with beaches green with mountains blue with the sparkling sea tobago has a beautiful beautiful beaches trinidad does too but it's harder to get to in trinidad i feel like if i'm right i remember there's another ad i um, love this one for the for bwia for bwi for bwi I love this. So let me read the copy. My mother's from Trinidad. My father's from Barbados. I have a sister in Antigua, two brothers in Tobago, an aunt in Paramaribo, cousins in St. Lucia, and in-laws in Georgetown. I fly home on the only airline that gets me to all of them, BWIA International. And let's talk about this guy because he is looking sharp. He's in like a smart suit. He's got his tie. He looks like he might be like some kind of teacher or scientist. He's like in a lab. He's got yes. like a really solid beard. Yes. Um, he look and he looks like sort of like decidedly middle class. Yes. Right. There are a couple of things here that I think are really important. One, the appeal to a middle class consumer by presenting a middle class subject in the ad. Right. So like there's this kind of identification with a certain kind of life lifestyle or image that I'm that person and I can relate to that Mm -hmm. person. And I think that says something about who the West Indian Carnival was attracting or becoming. The other thing is the naming of all of the countries. It's this kind of pan-West Indian or pan-Caribbean or even pan-African identity emerging within the context of the United States, which, when it comes to black people, does not allow for that kind of diversity. Or at least you have to understand that you're operating in a space where you are black. And so, like, both of those things are happening here in a very kind of clever way uh, that that is being invoked uh, in, in this. And in the context, of course of a multinational corporation, which is yeah. BWI, right? I mean, so. and that's a th- I mean, it's a, clearly BWI is like some kind of major sponsor yes. here, which I think yes. is really interesting because they put two full-page ads in. Yeah. And the two full-page ads feel really different. Yes. One actually feels like it's to a general audience. Like, this is your standard travel ad. We're going to get you with words like Azure Hills and like right. Sensuous right. and blah, blah, blah. Right. Anyone wants to go there, yes. right? Yes. This is, this second ad with our, with our guy, with our science teacher, yeah. it's I Know You. Yes. And we have an inside. Thing. We're family. We're family. Come see your family. Go see your family. Yes. We go to we go to see all your family. Yes, that's right. right? That's and right. I think so. What I think is really interesting here, and like I, I love this because this is what I actually do. My own work. I study ads and newspapers, and um, this is really reflective of like the nicheification of of ads and the seeking out of segmented and niche audiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And w- what's really interesting when we're thinking about advertising is that with Black Americans, this really doesn't take place until like the 40s and the 50s. That's right. That we start to see this really focused advertising on the part of like 
national advertisers to say, we're going to craft arguments, we're going to hire models, we're going to sell particular messages to black audiences, ones that really will resonate with them, like on that kind of inside message level. And yeah, that's what we see yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's kind of an interesting mix because on the one hand, it is an acknowledgement of black consumer power, which is... I think something that a lot of people celebrate. But on the other hand, it's this kind of marketing of, of black cultural That's identity, right. That's right. which can be a mixed bag, That's right. right? That's right. Sometimes like where an ad is placed has just as much to tell us about an ad as the content of the ad itself. I think it's really important about research. For people who do research, if you use like a lot of the digitized services, yeah. they don't include ads in their indexing. So a lot of times we think like, oh, we, we need to find the newspaper article or we need to find the content. Yeah. And sometimes, as you've pointed out, in the ads are really important stories about what's happening in the society at that given time. Mm -hmm. Ads are, if anything, a reflection of established economic power or perceived um, potential economic power, right. right? So what this ad, this big ad placed in here tells us is that this is a, a market that is seen as potentially very, very profitable. And I think what's important to say here is that it is. Yes. I mean, I yes. think, you know, we talked about a little bit about this in the first segment, but the West Indian Day Carnival is an enormous wealth generator for Crown Heights, for the artisans and the business owners um, in this area. For certain businesses, this is their Black Friday. This is their Christmas. Like you spend the year right. preparing, preparing for, for yeah. this thing. And this is this is how you break right. even or with a profit for the year. This is what carries you. And I think, you know, not just British West Indian Airlines, but there are other major advertisers in this souvenir book that reflect other companies' belief in the economic potential of this event. Obviously, ads here are an important cultural indicator. Also, I think there's other content in this brochure that is really interesting to me. You know, as we talked about, there are so many other events related to Carnival that take place months before Labor Day. There are things like beauty pageants mm -hmm. that are referenced mm -hmm. in here. There are conferences and speaker series. There's a lot of events in here that reflect the fact that there's an enormous amount of intellectual thought and planning going into all of these events. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe some people who come to the West Indian American Day Parade or Carnival, they experience the one day or the evening before and the day of the music and the celebration. It's a party. And they, yeah, and yeah. they think that that's, that's all that there is. But I think what's really Interesting and important to point out is that this celebration has remained in many ways connected to its origins mm -hmm. as an important transmitter of cultural values and identity and history and politics. And you see that uh, reflected in some of the uh, other pages in the souvenir booklet. And even the like the women um, who participated in the beauty pageant, like Miss West Indian Beauty Pageant 1980, I'm looking at here, like they are like they're not in their swimsuits. Do you know what right. I mean? Like they're glamorous, <laughs> right. like they're dressed so beautifully. I mean, this looks like a society page. 
and I think that reflects the, uh, I guess I'll say complex relationship to respectability politics that are being played out mm-hmm. both on the pages of the souvenir booklet, but then also on the streets of yes. Eastern Parkway. Yes. Um, yes. That one of these women or many of these women that you see pictured in, in like suits yes. um, as Miss West Indian might very well be in a sequined bikini on Eastern Parkway. And that does not take anything away from her being Miss Miss West Indian. And I think there, you know, that's maybe something that has not always been translated across culture is in certainly in the carnival, this divide of what we would consider like sensuality or celebration of the female body or women controlling how their body appears, even if it means showing a lot of their body, does not necessarily entail some of the assumptions people may make about that, right? Like this does not take away from who this woman is. It only adds a kind of multiple dimensioned person because there are there are like two to three million people who come out to this celebration. Many of these on any other day will put on their suits or put on their, their work clothes, put on their teachers, lawyers, their mothers, their grandmothers. Totally. Their, yeah. yeah, and yeah. It, it is not seen as contradictory. I think that part of understanding the West Indian Parade is understanding that it's a much more complicated understanding of what constitutes respectability. Yep. Let's flip all the way to the back and look at the dedication. So at the very end of this very thick brochure, we have a full page um, sort of in memoriam dedication. Right. And one is to Marie B. Austin, who was the executive, an executive board member of the West Indian American Day Carnival Association. And I guess that makes a lot of sense and understandable. But the, the three that proceed are really interesting. Mm-hmm. It says, in loving memory of the late, and in bold, these are all in bold print, in, including Marie Austin, but the, the first three are Children of Atlanta, Dr. Eric Williams, Bob Marley. And what's interesting is, so Marie Austin is identified, like it tells you who Marie Austin is. Yeah, the other side. The other three are not, That's because right. you're supposed to know who these three yeah. are and why they're here. Yeah, and I mean, so, and so like here's something really interesting as Zaheer and I are looking at this. I was like, Zaheer. What is this Children of Atlanta thing? I'm, I have no clue what this is referencing. And he was like, what? You don't? Yes. And yes. Which is, I think, really, I, I think it tells us, like, a lot about, you know, like, because, you know, like, full disclosure, we were kids then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. a lot about what was on our radars yes. and what was not on yes. our radars, given yes. our own different backgrounds. Yes. So tell us about this Children of so Atlanta. The, Children of Atlanta references the Atlanta child murders, which was a... A two or three year period yeah. of time leading up to 1981 where there was this series of of disappearances of black children in Atlanta. Tw- didn't 28 yeah. kids were murdered yeah. in and Atlanta? Just like, yeah, and just period. like there was a guy, I think Wayne something, who was arrested and confessed to some of, of the murders, like but it, it just remained really mysterious. But this brought on a wave of panic in communities around America, around child abduction and killing. And I I know in many communities where people were like, these black children are disappearing and no one is saying anything. What are people doing? And the fact that this is the first item on the dedication. The first dedication. um, I think says a lot about how the West Indian 
American Day Carnival saw itself. It is certainly consistent with the kind of political function mm -hmm. of carnival historically, mm -hmm. but also kind of speaks to understanding itself as an American institution with that kind of responsibility. The other two people listed are Dr. Eric Williams, who was the first prime minister of Trinidad when Trinidad became an independent nation and a scholar in his own right. He wrote the book Capitalism and Slavery, I think in 1944, which was one of the first among scholars to institute this wave of the economic understanding of slavery. And of course, the last name here, who I think is probably familiar to all of our listeners, is of course Bob Marley, who had passed away in May of 1981. Um, included also in this booklet is an essay actually about the historical origins of Rastafarianism. I think this is really actually fascinating because first of all it ties back to our conversation about the sort of the intellectual rigor behind the entire experience a multi-month experience of carnival this souvenir booklet is an educative piece as well right i mean and this actually the essay is pretty fascinating it like you know traces things way back to the early 19th century and we see the sort of the intellectual roots of rastafarianism it's also interesting in the context of that theme of violence that we had been talking about in the first segment, there had been a murder at one of the parades a couple years before. And if you look through some of the press clippings, they're attributing um, the shooting to somebody who was in a quote unquote Rastafarian cult. And of course, this is mainstream white newspapers at the time. Um, we have to read a lot of this through the lens of like the sort of the generalized racism that existed. And there was a lot of fear around the image of the Rastafarian. Yes. And so this honoring of him and this essay also has that kind of like dual purpose to rescue um, the intellectual roots of Rastafarianism. As much as the West Indian American Day Carnival is a day of revelry and lightheartedness for many of the pioneer organizers, right? Because this is still that pioneer generation that's organizing this event in 1981. For many of the pioneer organizers, and, and I'm sure still today, there has been a strong effort to maintain the connection between what's happening on Eastern Parkway mm -hmm. and its origins many, many generations ago. In this installment of Voices of Brooklyn, we actually get to listen to people who were participants in the West Indian American Day Carnival. Yeah, we're really lucky here at BHS to have an entire collection of oral histories dedicated to the West Indian Day Carnival. And this collection is called the West Indian Carnival Documentation Project Oral Histories. These were taken between 1994 and 1995, and they include 27 interviews. Again, you can search and listen to all of them on our oral history portal, brooklynhistory.org slash oral history. I really like this collection. I mean, one of the people, one of the narrators in this collection is Carlos Lazamo, who's a longtime head of the West Indian American Day Carnival Association. But 
we thought it'd be interesting to actually listen to people who were participants, not just the leadership. Who were on the ground. Yeah, who were on the ground. So the first narrator is Jeffrey Adolphus, who was born around 1952. He was born in Belize and immigrated to Brooklyn in 1971. Now, why I think he's really interesting is because he was Belizean. And this kind of speaks of the way the uh, carnival kind of expanded beyond its like original Trinidadian roots to incorporate other islands and other countries and ethnicities as part of the Caribbean diaspora. In this excerpt from his interview, he talks about the the work and disappointments and excitement in participating in the carnival. In my experience getting involved, actively involved, it's um, it's it's something I just can't explain. Mm. But it's it's becoming an, an addiction. It gets in your blood, and um, you find yourself um, going. I mean, there's no end in preparation. um, You're uh, being in the camp and looking at the the way the wires are being bent, the the endless nights that we spend down there, on the figuring ways how to come up with monies when we need to push a certain, um, when the deadline is coming near and then you have to still be be, um, be looking for monies. Um, the, um, getting the big pieces together, um, transporting them to the, um, to the site where the competition takes place. Um, waiting for your turn to go up on stage, um, trying out the costume, making sure that it's um, it's going to hold up. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't hold up all the time, so that falls down before you get on stage. Oh. Um, it's <laughs> it's mind-wrecking, it's nerve-shaking, it's, it's um, it, it, I guess it, it all combines, comes together to make, and this is what I guess the celebration is all about. It's not just having fun in the parkway, you know, it's, um, how did you get there? You know, if people outside would, would only get a little insight of the preparation that goes on, even with the masked men, the people who bend the wires. Last year in the camp, this guy, he was building, um, I, I, I don't really know what they call it, but like, it's like a big um, person, he was building a person. And um, he got so frustrated that he was, that he, 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 he was, one day I went there, he sat in front of this thing and he was thinking about lighting it a fire, yeah. even before the, the activity came, you know, so sometimes we go through a great deal of frustration, but um, the big reward comes when you hear um, they announce your name to come up and your character go up. Does the, do the presentation and then comes off and everything goes well, that gives you a good feeling. That's when the joy comes out. Mm. 
Wow, this was like an incredible passion for him. I yes. just, I actually was, when we were listening to it, jotting down all of the amazing words that he used, um, it was mind wrecking. Um, he had an addiction. It got in his blood, the endless nights that they worked for this. This is like the passion of, of his life. What I liked about this excerpt is the representation of work and labor. Like he has this one part where he says, uh, you see you see that day but how did you get here and he you know it he kind of walks us through some of that laborious process mm-hmm. of how did you get there and it doesn't sound maybe easy. as exciting <laughs> or easy as what you see on the parade but i think this speaks to the idea that this this is i mean i know for many people carnival is like a way of life you know that's true culturally it is part of their calendar. It is it's something that they do regularly, but it's also part of their work, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this he's talking about this man, like when he says bending the wires, this is like to, yes. to build A the structure. floats or the structure. Yeah. I think that that's really important for us to think about or keep in mind that that this is a whole a kind of whole economy is sustained through this this celebration not just the day of or the weekend of with the tourism and the sales that may happen you know mm-hmm. on on that day uh, or around that weekend but for the the people who have to make and sell or buy feathers and sequins and materials to build and when I walk through my neighborhood in the summertime you see the storefronts being opened for costume makers it's an expertise like this is skilled artisanship these are like couturiers you know I mean so it's 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 hard work but it's also an incredibly um, specific and rare skill that many of these costume makers like the most well-known costume makers in um in Crown Heights are like the Dior you know of this economy they're like these houses almost Ab- like absolutely. yeah 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 like, absolutely. I mean and I like how you talked about the man who's just like something just didn't go right and he and wanted to, to set, set we've it we've all fire. been there I mean you know there. like I think that tells about the kind of seriousness with which people approach design. Yeah. But also I I was really struck by um like the 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 need for money. You know? Yeah. I mean these yeah. costumes, the sequins, the feathers, the wire, they don't buy themselves, yes. right? Yes. Yes. And so basically like um having that balance of the economy versus the flash and the desire to win, figuring out how to manage that budget, possibly seeking out sponsors to help you with them. I mean, this it, it <laughs> fundraising is enormous work yes. as yes. well. As so that in addition to the the physical labor that they're putting and the mental labor that they're putting into building this you can really see how this is a a year-round commitment. So we're going to listen to another, um, one more clip. I think just a really lovely clip that wraps up a theme that we've been emphasizing throughout this episode, that uh, Carnival is not one thing. It is a multi-ethnic, multicultural experience and one that continues to evolve globally. The narrator is Angela Dublin, who was born in Curacao, but moved to Trinidad as a child. In 1967, she immigrated to the United States and settled in Brooklyn. And one of the reasons why I liked her 
interview and, and we certainly encourage all of our listeners to go listen to the full interviews because not everything can obviously be represented there's so much good in, in this, this interview but angela was a member of one of the steel bands so um i think it's really important when we, even when we talk about gender and and who's performing and i think that's important that we have her represented mm-hmm. in this clip she talks about the ethnic composition and appeal of the carnival Coming from Trinidad, there are all ethnic groups in Trinidad, as was mentioned before, Chinese, the East Indians, the Africans. Um, we even have white people, the white or Caucasian um, in Trinidad at carnival time. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Japanese and Korean. Um, I have seen Korean and Japanese People in Trinidad at kind of a time um, uh, filming the carnival and enjoying and enjoying the festival. So why not? Why not in America, where it is? America is not made up of one culture. It's made up of a vast variety. So therefore, the West Indian parade should not be limited to West Indians per se. It should be a joining of all cultural groups. In September, we're kicking off our fall series of events. And as always, there's a little something for everybody here at Brooklyn Historical Society. And we encourage you to check out the full listing of events. And I'm going to highlight one that I think is particularly interesting to me. And that is on Monday, September 11th, 6.30 p.m., we're going to have an installment of our Tales from the Vault series. And this one is going to look at agricultural Brooklyn. Many people may not know, but at one time, Brooklyn was all farms and fields. And and even into the 20th century, there continued to be significant agricultural life in Brooklyn. Join two of our colleagues, Tess Colwell and Regina Cara, who will share stories and imagery of agricultural Brooklyn from the collection of Eugene Armbruster's photographs. Again, that is Monday, September 11th at 6.30 p.m. It is $5 for non-members, but free for members. So as we always say, make sure you get your membership and you can get into most of these programs for free. Julie, what are you checking out this month? I am really excited for a book talk at the end of September. Um, On Thursday, September 28th at 6.30 p.m., we will be welcoming um, the winner of the 2017 Pulitzer Prize in History. This is pretty exciting. Wow, that's big. Um, Heather Ann Thompson, who will be talking about her incredible book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971. So this book talks about the really incredibly complicated um, five-day prison uprising, as well as the investigations that took place, um, the lawsuits, and then the untold stories that follow. The book is an incredible read. Uh, Heather is an amazing speaker. And if you're a member, which I'm sure all of our listeners are by now, you actually receive early access to the event. Again, this one takes place Thursday, September 28th at 6.30 p.m. It's five bucks um, and it's free for members. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. 
Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on any podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are Julie Golia and Zahir Ali. 